Well, good morning. Uh, please uh, keep that uh, passage open in front of you on uh, page 1174, Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, let's just pray before we begin. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this message of grace. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this morning as we listen. Amen. Well, uh, a reasonably well-known artist goes to speak to a gallery owner, and he says, the gallery owner says to him, I've got some good news and some bad news. The artist says, well, tell me the good news then. And the gallery owner says, the good news is that a man came into the shop and he asked me whether the price of your paintings would go up once you were dead. <laughs> when I told him they would, he bought every single one of your paintings. And the artist said, well, that's great. I've made loads of money, so what's the bad news? And the gallery owner says, the man was your doctor. <laughs> well, here in Ephesians chapter 2, in verses 1 to 10, we get both the good news and the bad news. But unlike the doctor in that story, Paul doesn't hold back in giving us the bad news. Paul knew very well what the human condition is all about. He says, the bad news is that all human beings, in their natural condition, are dead. Verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by all, we were by nature, objects of wrath. So according to Paul, we are dead. And the problem starts with our transgressions and our sins. Here, transgressions has a sense of breaking God's rules, transgressing an acceptable uh, line or code of behavior. And sins has a sense of failing to live up to God's standards, of not loving God with all our heart, our mind, and our soul, or failing to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. People sometimes call these the sins of uh, commission and sins of omission. Either way, it is sin. It is doing wrong by God. Now, uh, Alice Russell is here today. She was born this week. A lovely, cute little baby, and you all have the opportunity to say how lovely she is after the service. But uh, babies grow up, don't they? And they don't take long before they begin to learn those two important words, no and mine. We all have the capacity to disobey and to grab things for ourselves. It seems to be inbred into us. Yes, most of us are soon trained by our parents to, uh, to limit our bad behavior, and I trust, trust that most of us here generally want to be good people and behave well towards others. So why then do we continue to fail, to let ourselves down, to be caught unawares? The problem is that by nature, we tend to disobey God's rules, and we miss God's standards. We just can't make, uh, meet them. Imagine you had a bad dose of measles, and you went to the doctor, and the doctor uh, took out a large uh, box of sticking plasters and started to painstakingly stick a plaster over single, every single spot on your body. Of course, you'd be very grateful, wouldn't you? But uh, it wouldn't be solving the problem, because the disease is in the bloodstream. Sticking plaster over the spots is simply treating the symptoms. And it's the same with us. 
no matter how hard we try to do the right thing, the disease is in our bloodstream. And that's why Paul says that we are all dead in our sins. Of course, that doesn't mean that we are physically dead. If you notice a little further along in verse 2, Paul says, we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we lived. It's a living death. A spiritual death where although we're trying to live and do our best, we are spiritually dead because of our sin. It means that we have no relationship with God. That's what it means to be spiritual dead. It means to live life without any reference to God at all, without his support, without his love and his forgiveness, without the forgiveness of our Creator. In fact, it's even worse than that because not only are we dead, and we have, but we have no freedom either. We are dominated, Paul says. See, many people love to claim, my life is my own. I live as I wish. I'm not beholden to others, not to my parents, to the restrictive laws and society, to the teachings of the church or the expectations of a friend. I'm not a number. I'm a free man. One of my favorite quotes. But as we saw a couple of weeks ago, that is simply not true. We are never free. And here in chapter 2, we are not only dead in our sin, but we are dominated by what? Well, you may recognize this as the world, the flesh, and the devil. So verse 2 says, You used to live following the ways of the world, meaning you live ignoring the ways of God completely. You live by what is pragmatic or utilitarian or simply best for you. That's being dominated by the world. Later in verse 2, You used to live following the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's the devil. You followed him instead of acknowledging Christ as the Lord. And in verse 3, you used to live gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts instead of trying to please, living to please God. When Sylvia was pregnant with Alex, she had one of those strong cravings. We were talking this morning, we couldn't remember whether it was for mangoes or melons, but it was something like that. But I do remember being almost physically knocked over as uh, Sylvia made a mad dash across the kitchen towards the fridge. And that's what it's like with sin sometimes. Everything else gets pushed aside. Our logic, our good sense, our conscience, all to satisfy our sinful cravings. And that's the flesh. Now, of course, I'm not trying to suggest that we are all as bad as we could be. Nor does it mean that we could never do anything good in our lives. We all do good things and we could all be a lot worse than we are. But we also know that under that thin veneer of respectability, we're simply not as good as we could be. Each time we catch ourselves returning to an old habit we had promised to give up, or when we give in to a temptation that we thought was behind us, we are like the proverbial dogs who always return to their vomits. If we are not what we want to be, what we want to be for ourselves, then we're certainly not what God wants us to be. So not only are we dead because of our sins, we are dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. But it's even worse than that, because we're all heading for destruction. Verse 3 says, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, I was a young uh, teenager, about 13 years old, when I became a Christian. So does this mean that I was actually an object to God's wrath at the age of 13, up till then? 
So I hadn't done anything particularly bad, the usual fights with my brothers, the usual uh, teenage uh, moods, I guess. I don't even remember stealing anything at all from a, from, a, from a sweet shop or anything like that, although I do have this vague memory of guilt outside the Parmenter Road shop near Eaton Park, but that must have been one of my friends, I think. <laughs> I certainly didn't swear. I was far too well brought up for that sort of thing. Was I, was I an object of God's wrath at 13 years old? Or perhaps does God reserve his wrath for the real troublemakers? You know, the ones who will go on to give their testimony at Christian events, you know, and say, you know, I was, uh, at the age of two, I was a gang member. (laughs) Street fighting with broken baby bottles, and, you know, and it just goes from bad to worse. No, says Paul. Like the rest, we, even the decent ones, even the good religious Jews like Paul was before he became to Christ, We were all, by nature, that means by birth, objects of wrath. I have a friend, a a nun, who was most indignant that a Baptist pastor came to her church one day and started talking about God's wrath. So she stood up in the middle of the meeting and told everyone gathered there that as Anglicans we do not believe in God's wrath. Well, that's just completely wrong. We do believe in God's wrath because here it is in Ephesians 2 and in Romans and in Colossians and in 1 Thessalonians. And in case you think this is a Pauline thing only, it's also in the book of Revelation written by John. And Jesus, in the Gospels, talks about it more than anyone else. God is angry with us. You see, I'm afraid that my friends believe that there is no no, no such thing as God's wrath is based on a mistaken view that God's anger is somehow like our own anger. That's our own bad temper, something uncontrollable where we just fly off the handle sometimes. But God isn't like that. We don't have to tread carefully around God as though we're treading on eggshells, as we do with some of our human friends. No, God's wrath is a sign of his absolute goodness. It is entirely predictable opposition to everything that is bad. The best definition of it is this. God's anger with sin is his personal, righteous, and constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. Aren't you glad that we have a God like that? You see, the alternative would be a God who puts up with a little bit of sin, a little bit of compromise, a little bit of lying and cheating here and there. But if we want a God who is absolutely good, then we have to accept a God who is absolutely intent on destroying everything that is bad. So Paul says, the bad news is this. The bad news is that in our natural human condition, We are dead in our transgressions and sins. We are dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we are heading for God's righteous destruction. It's horrible, isn't it? The bad news is horrible. But that's what all of our friends and relations and work colleagues are facing every day of their lives. And none of us knows when that destruction might come. So thank goodness... In verse 4, thank goodness that in verse 4 there is a but. But, says Paul, 
But thank goodness, maybe, that humanity recognizes problems and tried harder. Thank goodness that humanity saw that it had gone wrong and went out and bought some self-help books to improve themselves, to learn how to be a better person. Or thank goodness humanity saw that they weren't right with God and decided to come over all religious and talk about inner healing and spiritual discovery and those sort of things. In short, thank goodness that humanity said enough is enough, we must do something to save ourselves. Isn't that what they said? Now perhaps some of you will... Uh, say those sort of things, or you know people who say those sort of things. If so, you're, you're not alone. There are millions of people in this country and around the world who believe that that is exactly what Christianity is all about. It's about saving ourselves. But as the old adage goes, five million people bought a Volkswagen Beetle. It doesn't make them right. Every single one of those cars had the engine in the wrong place. Christianity is not about saving ourselves. Think of this experiment which was shown on a television uh, document, documentary. An astronaut was floating around in a space station in zero gravity, just wearing a T-shirt and shorts. When he stretched out his hands, he was just a meter away from the space station wall. Another astronaut told him to move towards the wall, to wall, to the wall. But being in a weightless condition, he had the freedom to move. He could move his hands. He could uh, move his arms and his legs. If he crouched up his knees and tucked in his head, he could do a perfect forward roll on the spots in the air. But what he couldn't do is he couldn't move. When he stretched out his hand, he was still a meter away from the wall. So the TV commentary explained, we all have a physical center of gravity. The astronaut can spin freely around that center of gravity, but he cannot move it. If you left him there, he would eventually die, still spinning around about a meter away from the wall of the space station, about a meter away from food and water. He could never save himself. The only hope is that one of the other astronauts reaches out and pulls him to safety. You see, people who are spiritually dead, they like to think that they have the freedom to move, that they are free agents. But there is a tied to the world, the flesh and the devil, as surely as a spaceman is tied to his own center of gravity. None of us can save ourselves. Which is why in verse 4, Paul actually says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, It is by grace you have been saved. It's a marvellous solution, isn't it? Because it is God himself who saves us from his own righteous anger. Verse 4 tells us we are made alive with Christ, not by our own efforts, but when we were dead in our transgressions. We are made alive, no longer living dead, but alive. Jesus says, I have come to give you life, life to the full. If you want a picture of how that happens, think of the cold grey statues in the courtyard of the castle of the white rich in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Rich and the Wardrobe. Aslan approaches a stone lion, a statue, and for a second after Aslan had breathed upon him, the stone lion just looked the same. Then a tiny streak of gold began to run around his white marble back. Then it spreads, then the colour seemed to lick all over him as the flame licks all over a bit of paper. 
Then, while his hindquarters were still obviously stone, the lion shook his mane, and all the heavy stone folds rippled into living hair. Then he opened the great open uh, red mouth, warm and living, and gave a prodigious yawn. And now his hind legs come to life. He lifted one of them and scratched himself. Then, having caught sight of Aslan, he went bounding after him and frisking round him, whimpered with delight, and jumped up to lick his face. And very soon, the whole courtyard of the witch's castle was instead of having a steadily silence, the whole place rang with the sound of happy roarings, brayings, yelpings, barkings, squealings, cooings, neighings, stampings, shouts, hurrahs, songs, and laughter. We are made alive with Christ. And what's more, we are no longer dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Why not? Because in verse 6, it says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So we've been raised up to take our place with Jesus at the right hand of God. Sounds almost blasphemous, doesn't it? But what Paul wants us to understand here is that we've been truly set free from everything that holds us back. We are now the divine warriors that Paul describes in chapter 6 of Ephesians. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And even now, even here, we can catch glimpses of what we will see in full in heaven, the incomparable riches of his grace. You know, heaven's not going to be boring. There are treasures in store for us there. And it's not even just about gold and, and, and precious, June, uh, precious stones. No, here in verse 7, Paul says that God's riches will be expressed in what? In God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Don't you want somebody to be kind to you? Heaven is God's vault at the bank of kindness. That is God's grace. God's grace is not a wage in exchange for hard work, nor is it a prize fairly won in competition, nor is it an award for outstanding effort or high achievement. It is God's free, undeserved gift of kindness to those who don't deserve it and cannot help themselves. So where does this leave us? Well, some of you may have a clear choice this morning. You can react to the bad news of Ephesians 2 in several different ways. Someone has described it like this. Three middle-aged men, all smokers, go for tests at Norfolk and Norwich Hospital. When results come through, each one has to visit the heart specialist to discuss their case. Consultant explains to each one of them in turn that they have a serious, imminent danger of a major heart attack. And the only solution is heart surgery. The first man jumps to his feet in horror and he says, how dare you criticise my heart? My heart is my own business. It is private. You've no right to tell me what's wrong with my heart. And he storms out to the consultant's office. The second man also reacts with horror. He says, you are threatening me. You are too cruel to be a doctor. How dare you warn me of these terrible things? You're supposed to encourage me and make me feel better. And he too storms out of the office. The third man also listens to the doctor with horror. But after careful consideration, he replies, this is uh, quite a shock to me, hearing that I've got such a major problem with my heart. 
But I'm so glad that there was good news too. Something that can be done about it. Tell me more about this operation. So Jesus is like that heart surgeon. Yes, he warns us about the consequence of our rebellion against God. But he also provides us, in the very same breath, with the solution. Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 5, that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Perhaps some of you need to listen to that heart surgeon and cross from death to life this morning. Others of you are already, of you are already Christians and have been for some time. You've understood that message of grace and put your trust in Jesus Christ. So what does this message mean for you? Well, firstly, God's grace needs to make us humble. Verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, it, and that this, that is your salvation, is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Where then is boasting? It is excluded, says Paul in Romans 3. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, he says in another place. So how can a Christian be arrogant when the whole basis of our salvation is not ourselves, but God's grace? It's not what we have done for God, it's what God has done for us. God's grace should make us humble. Secondly, we should be hopeful, because we're now spiritually raised with Christ. We've been given this new relationship with Christ, by, by, with God, by the Holy Spirit. And in the coming age, we will see all those incomparable riches with our own eyes. But shouldn't we be more expectant of catching those glimpses now of God's riches day by day? Shouldn't we expect to hear God's voice more frequently? Shouldn't we expect more healing, more joy, more, more reconciled relationships, more love, more peace in difficult circumstances? We've been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms. You see, we often pray, don't we, let your kingdom come. Perhaps another way of praying that would be to pray, Dear God, show us today the incomparable riches of your grace. What a gift. Why don't we pray for that more? And lastly, we should also be available. That is, available to God for his service. Because in verse 10, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, good works are not a problem. It's just that they're not the way to salvation in biblical Christianity. See, if you remember back to chapter 1 and verse 4, it said, We have been chosen before the creation of the world for salvation, to be holy and blameless in God's sight. But Ephesians 2 tells us that we're also chosen for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And if you're worried about what those good works might look like, then you could do worse than starting with the words of Jesus in Luke 6. Jesus says, do to others as you would have them do to you. He goes on to say, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And Liz mentioned those earlier on, didn't she? So start with his love, start with love and mercy, because it is by God's love and God's mercy that we have been saved. So what a transformation in ten verses. From being dead in our transgressions and sins 
to carrying out good works which reflect the character of God himself. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you for that wonderful transformation that you work in the lives of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have changed from being objects of wrath to doing your good works which you prepared for us in advance. Lord, I pray that each one of us here might have our humility, our hope and our availability renewed because of the message here this morning. And I pray that some of us may put our trust in you for the first time. In the name of Christ, amen.